Sheila Shufflers McCormick is the apparent winner of the Democratic Party. The count is over. I've always faced obstacles in my life of actually overcoming, and this was another one. Or is it? The fight for a South Florida seat in Congress may not be over yet. I'm also grateful that so many people uh, put their trust in me uh, to continue my service. This is for my country, for freedom Cuban. We're here to give support um, to the Cuban cause. Solidarity across the straits. I think they're taking a, a stance, a strong stance. South Florida support for unprecedented protests in Cuba. And they're overcoming their fear and they want freedom. The reformers within the government are outnumbered. The mayor resigns, Opalaka upended again. We have got to stand up for people and protect their jobs and protect their livelihoods. Outlawing mandates, countdown to COVID focus this week in Tallahassee. It's all live this week in South Florida. Good morning, I'm Glenna Milberg. Michael is off, just us today with a packed hour ahead and when you start off with live pictures from Sky 10, live over downtown Miami, what you're looking at right now, members of a caravan for Cuba arriving in downtown Miami now. Organizers of this estimate some 1,200 cars taking part. We'll have more on the journey and the message and the solidarity with protests on the island tomorrow during this hour. But we begin with the number five. That's the number of voters in South Florida's District 20 that has decided the Democratic candidate for Congress. And because that district is most overwhelmingly Democratic in the state, the decision likely makes Sheila Sherfulis McCormick the next Congresswoman from Florida. McCormick bested 10 other candidates, most with far more political experience in both machine and manual recounts and lawsuit challenging three ballots. Sheila Sherfulis McCormick with us live. Good morning and welcome. Good to see you again. Good morning and thank you for having me. Of course. So I want to start out with, um, and I hate to be a Debbie Downer here, but really your win has uh, is with a minority of voters in District 20. You won by five votes. The mm -hmm. the the turnout was hardly 17% Broward and Palm Beach district. So here you are uh, facing a general election, but so many think you are the presumptive next Congresswoman. What do you tell all of the people in the district who did not vote for you? Well, I'm extremely happy to even have won the vote. Our numbers in Palm Beach County were overwhelming, and we actually performed very well in Broward County also. And that's how we got to this place right here. Although it was a close election, um, we're still willing and happy to serve everyone. I ran for this seat because I knew that the people needed a voice and a strong voice at that. And so it's overwhelming to be supported to this extent when we beat out so many elected officials, and we're happy to bring a fresh voice into Congress and to fight for the district's needs. So let's talk about all of those people that you bested. Uh, there were 10 other candidates. Five or six of them, though, to your point, were elected officials, name recognition in either Broward or Palm Beach. Sheila, you spent almost double on your campaign what all of the all of them combined spent. So I want to talk a little bit about the role of money in politics. It's there. Um, your campaign certainly is an example of what that money could do. D do you acknowledge that your expenditures really do make a difference? 
Well, I think that when you're a candidate who's running for the, um, this is my third time running for the seat. The money we invested was to make sure that we can touch the people in the community, but the money didn't determine this election because most people who put a lot of money in the community, in the campaigns, they don't win. What our campaign was, was a people-centered campaign where we were able to touch most of the people in the district. And our district has over 800,000 people. So we knew in order for us to be on the ground, to be able to hire enough people, to be able to even to sustain volunteers, we needed a healthy budget. And with that budget, we were able to employ over 200 people who were working consistently, knocking on doors, getting our message out, and really involve the community. So this win is not attributed to the money, but to the people who took part and to the jobs that were created. We had so many employees who bought even people to volunteer that our volunteer base went from two, 20 people to 100 people. And it was a community-centered um, activity. We had a lot of activities and events where we encouraged the community to come out and we bonded with them. And that's the win. It wasn't the money. It was connecting with the voters. Okay. I, and not to take away any connections with voters, and I really want to be clear about that, but you were up on the air. It's really expensive to do a campaign on television. Uh, you didn't have to do it statewide, but you did have to do it in two counties. And you were up on the air early and often. Uh, we thank you. you. You advertised on our program here a lot. That got your name out there. And what we heard from District 20 residents is it really, you had a message that really resonated with a lot of people in that you were promising a prosperity plan. I know you had a name for it, but $1,000 income, free and clear, for for people making $75,000 a year or less. People remembered that, we heard that. How are you gonna deliver on that? Well, what we were proposing was an economic stimulus check for the duration of any economic downturn. Right now, with so many people who are facing issues with paying their rent, housing, we feel that the community actually really needs that. And we even came to that conclusion by talking to the people in the community. So it's definitely what we're going to bring to Congress. One of our first pieces of legislation that we're going to push towards and make sure we fund it is to ensure that our district can recover. And so that's what was important, not just the prosperity plan itself, but I think it's because we were actually on the ground listening and hearing and seeing the devastation. As I visited so many churches, I found that more and more people were living in hotels because they couldn't afford homes or even apartments, which was heartbreaking. Um, I talked to a lot of people who said that they're about to be evicted. And so we saw the critical need to help the community. And that was the best piece of legislation that could be immediate to help the community. So you consider yourself, you're going to head to Congress, maybe. Uh, you got to get through a January election general first. Um, you consider yourself a progressive. I'm, I'm not big on labels here, but uh, there are a, there's a progressive caucus in Congress. Would you label yourself that way? Well, I'm not big on labels either. Um, I think that labels kind of are more divisive, but I do believe in progressive policies. And our district actually needs those policies so we can thrive. So legislation that prioritize um, helping the urgent needs of our community, that's what I'll be pushing. And that's really what the constituents are depending on me for. How can I help them today? How can I help their families today? Um, not getting caught up in political fights over progressive or conservative, but can we help the people? So you have advocated in your campaign, Medicare for All, a $20 an hour wage increase. You are a CEO of a home health care company. Do all of your employees make $20 an hour or up? Do they have benefits? What, are, are you walking the walk? 
Yes. So our, all of our employees get paid over $15 an hour, but most of our payments are through Medicaid and federal funding. And for the last 10 years, that's what I've been fighting in Congress is to raise that pay rate when it comes to any Medicaid funding. Now, anyone who's not getting paid by Medicaid is definitely getting paid much more than that. And that's what we were able to do. And that's why I say that people have to really understand the power of federal contracts. We were first able to start paying more than $20 when we were able to acquire more um, federal contracts. And then we started helping small businesses businesses acquire more federal contracts. And so that's what we're focusing on, bringing more businesses, bringing more funding so we can help pay that $20 minimum wage, not just taking a community right now, small businesses that are struggling to even pay $15 or $10, but let's start pushing life into these businesses so they can raise the minimum wage, so they can get paid more. But what I still feel is unacceptable is that the federal government is paying healthcare workers such a low raise, which hasn't risen in more than 10 years. That is unacceptable. Our federal government must pay our healthcare workers at least $20 an hour. I want to just real quickly touch on the campaign. Uh, your closest opponent, opponent, who you bested by five votes, Dale Holness, uh, Commissioner of Broward County, he will be with us in the next segment. He has not, at least that we've heard here, officially conceded to you yet. Um, is there a message you have about that or for him? No, not really, because, you know, we all fought hard in um, this campaign and it is a it's a calling when you're called to run, you commit. And so everybody has their process. But I think in time, you know, he'll come to a place where he'll make his own decision. You had uh, filed suit against mm -hmm. the Broward Supervisor of Elections for three and the canvassing board for three ballots that were first rejected and then mm -hmm. brought back and then accepted. Why file suit on that? Well, what we saw was an inconsistency in application of the law. What happened with that re-canvassing has never been done in the state before. And I felt like if we're going forward, we have to make sure that we have an equal process. And because this district is one district that lays in two counties, and because that was an action that has never been done with any um, SOE's office before, canvassing board, I felt the need for us to iron it out. There should be no room for real ambiguities when it comes to us assessing the people's voice and the people who are voting. And that's what I want to make sure is that we're actually on the narrow path of having honest, honest elections where you know mistakes aren't being made because anytime there's ambiguity, it can go either way. And so that's why it was important for us to challenge it and kind of figure out what is the standard? Can you re-canvas? Was that out of the um, peripheral or was it out of context? What could be done? And that still has not been decided. What she did decide is that I didn't suffer harm, so there was no need to decide on it right then and there. And not only did you not suffer harm, you actually have won the Democratic nomination for Congress. Sheila Scherfelis-McCormick, great to have you, and I hope you will be back often should you be in office. Thank you so much for having me, um, Glenna, and you've been wonderful, and I thank you for having me have this opportunity, but I'm also so thankful for the voters in Broward and Palm Beach County who came out on a special election, which was an odd year, and said, you know what, the people want a different voice, so I thank you so much. Voting, voting is good. Thanks again. We'll see you soon. And up next, the candidate who lost this race for Congress by five voters is not quite ready to concede. Dale Holness is live with us next. But first, let's go up in the chopper, Sky 10, another look over downtown Miami where this caravan in solidarity with Cubans who will be protesting on the island tomorrow is taking place. We will take you there during this hour. Stay tuned.
From the every vote counts files, that cliche is now also kind of an I told you so in what may be the closest race for Congress in South Florida history. Broward Commissioner Dale Holness lost that race by just five voters, but he has not officially conceded just yet. Dale Holness with us live now. Good morning, Commissioner. Share with us uh, your next move. Well, good morning. Uh, thanks for having me on. So. I will be meeting with council uh, today, tomorrow, uh, to determine a course of action. You did not mention that there are 12 votes that came in from military personnel and their dependents and spouses uh, that were not counted. And in fact, last November for that election, 168 such votes were counted. They were not counted this time. And they were not counted uh, because they came in after deadline? They came in after, but the, the, the way it was handled previously was that these votes would be counted because it's supposed to be that you would uh, give the benefit of the doubt to the military uh, personnel that they would be serving us and not be able to vote. Uh, this time around, that was changed. Uh, you, so, so, so there is some issue there as to how we deal with those 12 votes. I don't know who those 12 votes are for, uh, but we ought to ensure that our military personnel who we put in arms way, uh, they give never a bit of the benefit of a doubt as to how they cast their ballot. And, and, and that was done previously in Broward County with 168 of uh, such votes being counted. This time around, not so. Uh, you mentioned earlier about the stop the vote, uh, um, three, three, three ballots that the supervisor, I'm sorry, the canvassing board from the supervisor of elections and the county commissioner and the uh, county attorney looked at uh, and they looked at it again after it was examined and decided that uh, the signatures uh, weren't certain whether or not they were not the person's signature. And that isn't this, is the standard isn't this as to whether or not you can clearly yeah. uh, say that someone's signature is not their signature. Similarly, with the ballots, we don't know if these folks were overseas or not. Uh, we need to make a determination as to that before we uh, move forward with this. I understood. Let me let me just jump in. Let me just jump in here. I hate I hate to interrupt you, but I just uh, for time reasons, I really want to get in some. I mean, clearly you are looking at each and every ballot. We were at the uh, canvassing board count last week, and and you had lists of voters in your hand. I mean, I know you are scrutinizing this deep down, but doesn't every election that that comes and goes? There are these same issues. There are post office backlogs. There are military ballots. But there are hard and fast deadlines and rules. And isn't it a matter of you got to draw the line somewhere? You got to make the rules somehow? And I understand that clearly. But the rules are to be clear and clearly defined. And people need to understand exactly what the rules are. And that's the contention I have at this point in time. Uh, in that they are not clearly defined. Last year, 168 of these similarly situated ballots were counted. Why not count them now? So does that mean you will be filing some sort of legal action? Break some news with <laughs> us here today. We will, <laughs> we will be making a determination within the next couple of days as to what we do. We have 10 days after the, the, the count from Friday uh, to determine the, the course of actions that we take. And uh, again, we will be looking closely at what our options are and what's the best course, course of action is. Certainly, uh, Ms. McCormick has five votes more than I as at this point. Uh, we will look to see whether or not those 12 votes can be brought in. And, and, and then that might determine the outcome finally.
we don't know where that will go. We don't know what court will say either uh, if we go to court. But we, we're looking at all these options. Uh, and I, I believe that if a voter make an effort to cast a vote, we ought to give them the due consideration, uh, especially those who are serving in our military and their families, uh, to, to just discard them without really making an issue as to whether or not it's correct to do so uh, would not be fair to our military personnel. All right, we will look for that. I want to, while we have you here, I want to ask you, um, put on your other hat as uh, commissioner in Broward County, and I wanted to ask you, about the session this week in Tallahassee starting tomorrow where the governor and Florida lawmakers will be looking for ways to create laws. There's four bills on the table to um, eliminate vaccine mandates for employees and uh, not only in public sector but in private sector. But as a leader in the public sector, uh, this would sort of usurp local authority. You were actually the mayor of Broward County during the real parts of the COVID crisis. So I was wondering if you would weigh in as a Broward commissioner on these bills that they'll be voting for this week in Tallahassee. I certainly don't believe that uh, the state governments should usurp the power of local government. We're closest to the people. We understand them more. We know what the needs are more than they do. And, and to do so, I don't think it's right. Uh, the greatness of our country is that we have local community-led efforts to build and strengthen and support community. It doesn't come from a central government. When you look around the world and see where central governments or, or, or larger governments dominate, the local community doesn't have the flexibility to do what's in the best interest of those people. And, and, and communities differ uh, in terms of age and, and, and work and all kinds of different things. You have large retirement communities that might be affected different, differently than a working community. Now in Broward County, what we've chosen to do is offer incentive uh, to those who get vaccinated and also some uh, disincentive for those who don't want to get it, that they pay a little bit more for insurance because it's gonna cost us more if you get ill and go to the hospital. Uh, it will cost the taxpayers more money uh, if, if, that, if that occurs. And, and we wanna make sure that we keep our, our community strong and safe as we did during the height of the pandemic. We pulled together leadership across Broad County and we worked together to ensure we're saving lives and protecting our livelihoods. And, and I, I thought we were very successful uh, in doing so. In fact, we had a lower debt rate per capita in Broward County than Palm Beach or Miami-Dade County. And that is because we took local action driven locally by our leadership. Dale Holness, I appreciate you weighing in, candidate and commissioner, and please do keep us in the loop for the next moves. And uh, well, great you know, to see you. I, I gotta tell you, Glenn, I'm pardoning that when you have them, 3.7 million dollars put in a race. You can tell, tell a story you want. We heard a thousand per month. People heard that. Uh, they believe it. We we now did talk about money in politics. That 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 is that is not dollars. money in politics is not breaking news, right? <laughs> Thanks so much. Appreciate that a lot. All right. In the Republican primary for that race for Congress, there was a clear winner, but that came with some confusing questions. Meet candidate for Congress, Jason Mariner. Next. South Florida's congressional primary did have one clear winner election night, and that was the winner of the Republican side primary. Jason Mariner won with 58% of Republican voters, but his win also comes with some questions, which he is right here to answer. Jason, it's great to have you with us. Welcome aboard. 
Thank you for having me, Glenna. How are you today? I'm doing great, always. So you are an ad exec from Palm Beach Gardens. You are now a Republican candidate for Congress. You got into the race pretty late. Uh, race yes, in the bluest district in the state of Florida. Why did you do this and what do you hope to achieve? Well, blue is what they say. Um, it's It's been quite different from what I've found in, in talking to people in District 20. Um, being on the streets, this is a grassroots campaign and you're right, I did enter uh, the race very late. Um, you know, I heard a lot of, you can't do this, this is too hard, don't try, it's impossible, people won't vote for you. And I said, well, we're gonna find out about that. And yes, I did enter, uh, it was the spur of the moment thing. And, you know, I've looked around the area for 15, 20 years and asked myself, why do we keep hiring people to represent us that have really little to no clue as to what the people in the district actually need. You know, let me um, let me just stop you right there for a second because sure. that, that's an interesting take because we certainly have met voters that do what you say they are doing. You know, District 20 is a really, uh, I'm gonna use the word diverse and I think people think ethnically when, when you use the word diverse, but also, I mean, it's really urban in some places. It's really rural and agricultural in other places. It spans from the edge of the Everglades to the edge of the ocean. And when you're walking around and talking to people and meeting voters, you're doing so in a really tribal time in our country. So even people who don't know the issues or don't really know how they feel about the issues issues do know that they are red or blue. And um, and so how do you overcome that? Well, look, one of the things that was told to me early on is that because of the color of my skin, it was going to be impossible for me to get uh, across to a specific demographic. And I said, that's ridiculous. That's not American. And I quite simply, yesterday was a perfect example. I was out in Belgrade at a diner and I was talking to people, just talking to them as a normal person. And uh, you know, like we mentioned earlier, I was an advertising executive. I had gotten into trouble a long time ago. I turned my life around. Um, you know, I've been through a lot of the issues that plague the communities. Um, and, and again, that led me to the question, why do we keep hiring people that are really out of touch with the things that we go through. I don't have a million dollar bank account. Um, I've worked a job all my life. I've been in trouble. Um, you know, I've experienced some of these ups and downs. I have kids of my own. And I can't promise everyone the world, you know, from a, a congressional standpoint, and that's not reasonable. And that's kind of what I always see happening. It's you get promised some, some very, very, very shiny package that you're going to get. and. You know, you give them your vote, you give them your money and support, and then you never hear from them again. I, I wanna, okay, I, I want to um, talk, maybe people who have not read much about you, sure. I want to delve into a little bit about what you kind of touched on in that you uh, have been very public with your personal struggles and um, yes. you did spend time in prison. You are a convicted felon. Uh, thanks to Amendment 4, you do get your voting rights back because you've paid your dues. Right. Uh, there was some question that you didn't take the steps you needed to qualify to be a candidate for office. Has that been ironed out? Are, are you qualified to do this? The, look, the Constitution clearly outlines it. There's a response um, that was drafted up by my attorney. It's on the website. 
Mariner for, for Congress.com and you spell out for F-O-R. So it's Mariner, F-O-R, Congress.com. You can read all about it. And the Constitution really outlines three qualifying factors to run for federal office. Um, you're 25 years old. You live in the state in which you seek election. And you've been a resident of the United States for a minimum of seven years. Okay, that's it. And it goes on to even say, um, and there was an essay done and it was published in the Library of Congress that um, there's no requirement that you not be in prison. Um, the point I'm trying to make is this is not about me. When, when, when these uh, false attacks come in, this story was written months before I won the primary. Um, you know, it was rather timefully dropped. Um, and I was called and questioned about it. And I already knew the answer because I'm very familiar with it. All right, so you, you're chalking this up to a, a hit piece, and so we can we can it move is, on with is, that. It is, so absolutely. I want to um, talk to the people of District 20. I mean, it's a district, but as a member of Congress, you represent, you vote, you're, you have an effect on the whole nation. So on the spectrum, as a Republican, on the, you're not going to be ultra-progressive, obviously, but from on the spectrum from very far left to ultra-conservative, in this very blue district, where do you self-describe you are on that spectrum? I'm a regular person. I'm not a career politician. <laughs> um, You're not taking you know, sides here? I, no, I am taking sides, and I'm taking the side of the Constitution. I'm taking the conservative side. I'm taking the side of, look, you're going to be the only person in your life that's going to box yourself in. Okay, you can you can think that you don't have a political science degree, therefore you can't run for Congress. Um, you can take a look at me, for example, and say, well, you know, that guy did time and he barely graduated high school, yet here he is. And, you know, the key to this thing is you find a higher purpose, you find God, you help other people, and you can do anything. All you have to do is try. Amen and to that. We, we, are, we are totally with you on that account. No dispute there. I'm just trying to get yeah. to a little bit of your thoughts and your, sure. uh, your beliefs sure. and your policies. So let me ask you this way. Would you have voted on the infrastructure bill? President Biden's going to no. sign it tomorrow? No. Why not? Absolutely not. No. Why not? My, I, money for money roads, needs... bridges, infrastructure yeah. in Palm Beach and Broward? Why not? That money needs to be spent at home before we go and give it out to the rest of the world and steal from our children and their children. That's what this bill is going to do. I want to see District 20 with properly done sidewalks and curbs and drainage. Um, you take cities like Belglade or Pahokee, they don't have sidewalks. They don't have street signs wouldn't, in certain Wouldn't areas. the infrastructure money, those projects would absolutely be eligible for infrastructure money? No, because if you actually read the bill, very little of that infrastructure bill goes to home. Most of it's allocated for the rest of the world and ridiculous projects. And, you know, what I see over and over again are, are okay, we're going to do this, but it never happens. Um, I want there to be sidewalks. I want there to be curbs. I want there to be, yeah, I want District 20 to look nice again. I want parents to be able to send their children to we have this thing called public schools to me this is a no-brainer but if you have public schools you should be able to send your children to the school that they need or that you choose to send them to parents okay? choice is this always going to be a big issue absolutely i am um, let and, me let uh, me i just want to um tv time for sure. anybody joining us is always pretty short so i apologize for that um That's and i okay. invite you the general election is january 11th and uh, we wish you all the best as we do your opponent. And if you become a member of Congress, I need you to confirm that you will be here with us often. I will be here with you often and I will be here for the people always. And I will continue to fight for their jobs, their children, and to bring faith 
right into the center of the community and amplify that because that's what we need to survive. That's what this country is built on, is faith. Jason so Mariner, we're have it is more of that. great to have you with us today. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. We'll I appreciate you, you. All right, take care. All right, next, a call for Cuba. Right now, this show of solidarity, we've showed you the roads, now we show you the bay, a flotilla of sorts in support of protests for freedom planned for tomorrow on the island, marches there. We're right there live, as you see, in the air and on the ground, and that is next. Right now, crowds are gathering, as you saw, in Miami in solidarity with a planned protest for freedom by Cubans in Cuba tomorrow. Those pro-democracy marches there have been officially banned by the Cuban government. An inside look is coming up, but first, the local show of support. Trent Kelly is in Miami right there with the protesters. Trent. Yeah, Glenna, a very multimodal show of support, if you will, after initially holding a caravan of more than a thousand cars from the Cuban Memorial in Tamiami Park. The organizers behind this local rally are now preparing to take to the water. You can see right behind me here this flotilla of sorts, which is already gathering here in the boat slip near the FTX arena. You can see about a dozen or so boats on hand already. The vast majority of them decked out in those large Cuban flags. I'm told they are planning to leave here in just a few moments. Once some of those caravan participants arrive, they will then be heading out into Biscayne Bay before eventually coming back here to downtown Miami around 1 o'clock this afternoon. Sky 10 also up in the air right now, giving you an aerial look at this flotilla as it is beginning to gather. Now, the goal here of organizers is twofold. Obviously, they really want to get their message of change out to the public here in the U.S., showing Americans why it is important to continue pushing for change there in Cuba. But they're also hoping that that same message reaches those family members or friends that they have who are still on the island, many of whom may be planning to take to the streets tomorrow for those pro-democracy demonstrations. Now, as you mentioned, Glenna, even though the Cuban government has already begun cracking down on some of these demonstrations, outlawing these pro-democracy marches. Many people there in Cuba, though, are still expected to take to the streets tomorrow. Some even are expecting it to be another large demonstration, similar to what we saw happening back in July. That uh, public show of uh, call for a change there in Cuba really taking many people by surprise. So back out here live on the ground again, this flotilla now starting to gather. They'll be departing here momentarily as they continue these calls for change there in Cuba. For now, that's the latest live from downtown Miami. Reporting for this week in South Florida, I'm Trent Kelly. Back to you, Glenna. Trent, great to have you there. Thanks so much. We're going to take a quick break and be right back. One of those most involved in coordinating the local solidarity with the protests in Cuba is Orlando Gutierrez Boronat, who heads the Cuban Democratic Directorate. And Orlando is with us now live, not only from the caravan, but in your car. Orlando, that is a yeoman's effort for us. We really appreciate that. Welcome. Well, we appreciate your coverage of, of this huge day uh, for the Cuban American community here in South Florida. 
So we have been showing our audience some bird's eye view. Um, I know there's a caravan and then there's a flotilla of swords and it's all to express sol solidarity with these protests tomorrow planned in Cuba. Uh, we had you on with us a few months ago the last protests in Cuba, which were much more sort of spontaneous and grassroots from the plans tomorrow. And, and that has looks like it's uh, proven to be a bit problematic on the island in that the government has has essentially banned them. What what are you hearing? Well, first of all, it's an ongoing struggle of resistance by the Cuban people against this regime, which has greatly intensified and become a, a mass popular movement since the July 11 protests. What we see in the, in the last hours has been prominent religious leaders inside Cuba with the evangelical churches, the Catholic Church, calling on the military not to repress, uh, uh, defending the right of the Cuban people to defend themselves, to protest. We saw the Spanish news agency EFE expelled from Cuba last night. Uh, we know that foreign uh, correspondents were beaten up today in front of the home of one of the key activists. Uh, we're hearing some reports of anti-government protests in the city of Camagüey. All this is going on now. So what you're hearing, it sounds like, is in advance of what the government knows is going to be mass protests because it was informed. Uh, much more repression and uptick in political arrests. Um, what does that tell you about the government? Is that fear? Is that uh, power? What, what does that tell you? The regime knows that this is but the tip of the iceberg. An overwhelming majority of Cubans want change. They want freedom. They want democracy. And they know that these initiatives are, are focusing that popular desire into a movement for change. I want to say that um, objectively, this is an ongoing struggle. The regime has really mobilized its forces for repression. Um, so people are finding different ways, different uh, manners in which to resist the regime. And at, even after tomorrow, there will continue to be protests and activity as Cubans continue to organize a national strike against uh, the regime. This is one more step and what is a, in an overarching process to bring about democratic change in Cuba. The government in Cuba and those who support the government in Cuba, at least publicly, are telling the people there that the United States is behind the protests planned there. They're telling their people that the United States wants to force regime change and is putting its money and power into these protests, fomenting these protests. Would you like to address that? It's really hypocritical that a regime that has sent trained guerrillas throughout Latin America, that exported terrorism to every single Latin American country, that sent armies to invade Africa, is accusing the U.S. of standing in solidarity with peaceful pro-democracy activists in Cuba. We welcome U.S. sanctions. We welcome support from the U.S. and the European Union. Today, we have a large delegation of European parliamentarians present with us. Uh, and that's the kind of, of support of solidarity that democracy needs, that people need to find their freedom. And we're thankful to the U.S. And this is just a, a hypocritical regime that has intervened in every single country, including the U.S. It has desired to. And now it's trying to, to deviate attention from popular discontent in Cuba by turning it into an issue with the U.S. You know, you and so many in South Florida have been for so long fighting this cause. It is such a personal and, and local news story. Uh, earlier this month, there was a resolution in Congress expressing solidarity with Cuba, 
Cuba's protesters for tomorrow. And 40 members of Congress voted against that. And one of the reasons we heard was because they, not that they didn't feel solidarity, but they wanted a resolution that had more teeth, that wanted votes on sanctions and aid instead of solidarity. But yet 40 people voted against expressing solidarity with those on the island. What do you think about that? I think it's wrong. It's, it's time to stand together. It's, it's time for stiff sanctions against that regime. Um, the regime has few sources of financing left. Uh, they're, they're, they're in Europe. And I think that it's important that as the U.S. government and the European Union have, have stated over the past few days that additional sanctions be levied against the regime because the repression has started. There are arrests. There are beatings taking place throughout Cuba. I'd also like to say, Glenn, if you, if you um, give me the opportunity, it's been very moving to see very courageous priests and religious leaders inside Cuba call on the military not to repress its own people. Knowing what that regime is like, what it can do, these, these unarmed uh, religious leaders have really taken a very uh, respectable moral stance in support of their people, calling the military and the police not to repress. Orlando Gutierrez, Bornat, it is great to have you with us from the side Thank of you. the road. We're going to let you get back, uh, get the wheels rolling again and participate, and we'll be watching what happens next. Thanks so much. And next, South Florida's city in chronic chaos. This week's upheaval in Opalaka, the sudden resignation of the mayor and his allegations. Opalaka is again a city in turmoil, internal and in public. The commission meetings have had their share of drama lately, but none quite as surprising as this week's when the mayor stood up and suddenly resigned. And the reason, he said, was corruption. And suddenly, Vice Mayor Veronica Williams became Madam Mayor and is right there with us live today. Madam Mayor, great to have you. Good morning, Glenna. How are you? Very well, thank you for asking. And I'd like to spend the short time that we have together um, specifically for residents of Opalaka. Then let's address all of this to them. Uh, the mayor got up and said, I will not be a figurehead for corruption. As vice mayor, what do you know and what does he know that the residents should know? Well, Glenna, I can tell you um, first, thank you for letting me be uh, here on your show and represent the great city of Opalaka. Um, I, I will not speak on what the mayor, uh, the, uh, Mr. Pygate, know. However, I can tell you moving forward that we're uh, prepared to uh, build a great city that we've always um, and have been uh, moving forward. Um, we have um, uh, tons of projects that we're um, working on. Um, I can't speak to what Mr. Pygate um, his allegations, but I can tell you that as a, a, a board that we're prepared to um, make sure that um, our city is a first-rate city, and that's what we've been working on. So um, I, I don't know what um, those uh, allegations were about. So, so clearly, and to your credit, you want to move forward and you want faith in your government, and um, and that is very clear. Uh, there is, though, a past history and experience that Opalaka has had and continues to have. 2016, we covered the federal raid on City Hall. There were arrests, the uh, a former commissioner now, a former city manager, former public works director, bribery, extortion, uh, and the list goes on. Um, 
And so in 2019, which was three years later, a state auditor essentially said not much has changed fast enough. Uh, lack of controls, lack of records, lack of operations. Um, as you go forward, your former mayor is speaking to the FDLE about allegations. You must know where the fixes need to be. And, and I'm hoping you'll share some of that with us. Well, Glenna, I can tell you that um, I've been on the board for a year and uh, most of our commissioners, we are new. Um, we have not seen or nor heard uh, what Mr. Pygett has mentioned. We've been uh, moving our city forward along with our um, leaders within the city and within the, um, the structure of our city manager right down to all of our uh, figureheads. So unfortunately, we have absolutely no idea what um, that though uh, those allegations and that's what they are, they're allegations. Um, but I can tell you that everything that you've mentioned have been in the past and moving forward within um, how, what we've been working on this year, I, I employ the, uh, all, of, all of our um, news media and news outlets, we've done so many great things in the city of Opelika. And unfortunately, the only traction that uh, Opelika gets is when it's um, anything built on the negativity. So I can't speak to anything that happened in the past within Opelika, but I can tell you and I invite all news agencies, media and print to please make sure that you're uh, watching Opelika, not just the bad, but when we're doing great things in in, in our city. And that's what I we would love to do to, to make yes. sure that we're rewriting the narrative. Okay, and, and I want you to know that that's an allegation for news that we have heard before, and I invite you to consider that when everything goes right and goes well, that's not news. And the things that do go wrong, especially in government, is, is what news is tasked with bringing to light. Uh, one of one of the questions I have as I sit and I listen to you, and, and I just want to say that everyone here at Local 10 is absolutely with you to do great things in Opelika. But as I sit and listen to you, um, I wonder if you are concerned that there are these allegations. Will you or your staff, or will you be directing anybody to look into what the allegations are? Well, you know, Glenna, everyone has a purpose and a reason. Um, we can't, I can't speak on um, that, those particular allegations. Um, I do know that, uh, again, that allegations are just that. That's what they are until they're founded to be true. Right, but do so you, I guess to, my question um, is, do you, do you want to know? Are you, is the city, as FDLE looks into it, is the city looking into it? Do you want to know what those allegations are? Well, again, um, those allegations were not um, made uh, by us as a board, it was made by one person. So of course we would love to make sure our city is uh, moving and, and not in the wrong direction, but in a positive direction. But again, I can speak for our entire city commission. Um, we were not, we were caught off guard, but we have not seen or nor heard of any, um, and I'll just say the C word. Um, so again, but we don't know everyone's motive. We don't know Mr. Pygett's motive and I'm not going to um, actually spend any time to try to figure out what was in his head as to why he did what he did or said what he said. But again, working as a city, and I can again speak for the commission, that we want to make sure that um, anything that is 
improperly ran will be properly ran. And so we're continuously having those conversations with our staff and our city management to make sure that there is no improprieties that are happening. Mayor Veronica Williams, I appreciate your time. You have our word. We will be doing the good and the bad in Opalaka, and we invite you to keep us informed on what's going on in your city. Thank you and for being with us. And we'd love to see you all, especially when we're doing the good of Opalaka. Okay, you. we'll be there, promise. Thanks again. And we thank you for being here with us all hour. Remember, we are online 24-7, and we are going to be leaving you with live pictures from Sky 10 of the caravan for Cuba. Have a beautiful Sunday.